At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. Today I have a very special guest, a woman who has been precipitated into a position of enormous importance in British medicine and politics because she was invited by the government to do the most systematic review of drug policy, particularly in relation to health, for many decades. So, of course, it's Dame Carol Black. Welcome, Carol. Thank you very much. So I'd, I'd like to introduce some, you know, my guests to the audience by getting them to say a little bit about their backgrounds. You know, you're obviously, uh, you know, you were an extremely successful and very uh, pioneering female doctor before you became even more famous with the drug review. So tell us a bit about your background and why you got into medicine and, and how your career developed and et cetera. Gosh, born into a working class family in the Midlands near to Leicester, a village called Barwell. Managed to pass the 11 plus. I suspect I just scraped it. I was not a good student at the primary school. I was always in trouble and always made to write lines, put in the corner and, and just was a plain nuisance. I went to grammar school. I didn't really understand what that was about. And I never knew there was a place called a university. And there was just one book in the family I was I lived in. That was the Bible. We didn't have any other books in the house. So I was expected to leave school and work in the factories like all of my relatives. But I didn't do that, David. When I took my O-levels, I got the same sort of marks that history and, and English and, and the arts and sciences. And they both tried to get me into the respective six forms. But I had a crush on the history master. Oh, right. And he was unmarried, and I thought he was just wonderful. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, the way your careers get sorted out. So I went into the history six, which really, therefore, determined that I would go to university to study an art subject. I did English history and geography. You could say that was probably a great mistake, because when I got to university, I really disliked it. I knew by the end of the first year that it was a pretty big mistake. Interestingly, I wanted to do something that really made a sort of, that involved people. And I misguidedly probably thought history was determined by great leaders. And I went and thought, you know, this would be about understanding how leaders acted and got things done. Well, it all turned out to be about constitutions and, and law. I hung out with the medical crowd and in fact on my corridor in my hall of residence several medics I gradually began to think really why on earth did I not do medicine and then cutting a few years out it took me quite a while to change to medicine because one financially I had no support and then of course I had to face the fact that I'd have to do first MB 
Oh, wow. But actually, on that point, I think quite a few of our listeners won't. They're not generally medics. So so that means basically kind of doing A-level chemistry and physics and biology again, doesn't it, before you could even start in? Well, you remember, I only got O-level biology, chemistry, physics, and, and maths. So I did go back. I tried not to. I became a medical social worker. Oh, right. Because I thought I could, I wanted to work in a hospital. And so I knew I wanted to do hospital medicine. But while I was doing that course, the head of that course said, you really want to be a doctor, don't you? And I said, yes, but it's simply not possible. And this isn't near as I'll get. She said, look, a great friend of mine is Cecily Saunders. Oh, right. Yes. A woman who changed my life. And changed the lives of many people with uh, with the hospice. Yeah. Yes. And she was coming to Bristol to lecture and I had supper with her, with this other woman. And she said, look, I read a degree in history. I am a social worker and I'm also a nurse. And then I did medicine. And <laughs> she said, I'm going to try and put you off it because it's a pretty grim path in the beginning. Not when she, you know, you got into clinical yeah. medicine. She says, if I don't persuade you to not do it, you better get on and find a way to do it. That was it, really. So I had to find a way. And I mean, I got a place in Bristol and then paid my way through most of medical school, except for the last year, by working. But the dean asked my education authority to pay the last year because he didn't think I should do finals and try and work. So that's how I got into medicine. And it was just worth every every ounce of what it took because I have loved it as a career. I can't think of a better career. Well, I would agree with you. Imagine similar backgrounds. I'm working class, first one in my family to university. Yeah, and uh, so I have a lot of I have a lot of sympathy. And there's no question, medicine is too you know the ultimate. You get you get to meet people interesting people all the time, and you also get to um, to help people. You know, it's a it's got a virtuous circle, isn't it? So it's encourage anyone that wants to wants to do things that uh, really really help others medicines are fabulous even professional although of course it's perhaps a bit tougher now than it was in our day in terms of in terms of the issues with covid and the extra pressures doctors seem to be under but uh, yeah absolutely completely endorse your uh, your sentiments about medicine as a career but you focus on rheumatology is that right yes and i got to my subject not because it was the one i wanted to do um I wanted, first of all, to do be a neurosurgeon. And then I thought how boring that would be because the patients were always asleep. And so I thought, no, 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 surgery is not on. <laughs> and then I was doing the professor of medicine's house job, Alan Reeds, and I, he was a liver doctor and I loved liver medicine. I said, Alan, I, I, I want to be a liver doctor. And I think one of the worst sort of moments for me was when he said, you can't be, Carol. So I said, I can't be. And he said, look, you're eight years older than everybody else. And gastroenterology is already over full. And in those days, if you remember, David, you you had to wait for somebody to die. Exactly. Exactly. And he said, I have senior registrars who are 41. And that's not okay. You can't. You, you have got to go and find another specialty and then I'll support you. 
And I know it sounds sort of ridiculous. I, I then went and looked to see where at the top of the profession there were, were there were vacancies. So it was quite <laughs> honestly psychiatry, geriatrics, yeah. rheumatology, rehabilitation, you know. They were the subjects. It wasn't cardiology or neurology or gastroenterology. So I thought, right, the rheumatology. And the reason I sort of chose that over the others was I wanted to do internal medicine. Mm -hmm. And, of course, if you do the connective tissue diseases, which is what I did, you do internal medicine. So, I mean, it was no more difficult than that, but pretty disappointing. I wasn't happy. <laughs> to start with. Right. But you've also taken on leadership roles in medicine as well as clinical roles, haven't you? I mean, you've uh, were you the first female president of the, of the Royal College of Physicians? Is that right? I was the second. Margaret Turner Warwick was the first. Wow. But I, I sort of, um, I'd say I'm a late developer. I realised quite late in life that I could do leadership roles. I mean, which is interesting. I um. I developed a great interest, as you may know, in a disease called scleroderma, and I set up the National Service for that disease and did a lot of basic research. And I realized I was pretty good at building things. So I, I, I knew how to build teams and, and to get people to work together and get things done. And I took a disease which was a horrid disease, which affected mainly women. And then my hospital said, would I be their medical director? So that was a very different sort of leadership role. And then I complained to the president of the College of Physicians that I thought it was a stuffy dinosaurial place. And why did I pay them any money to be <laughs> a fellow? You know, I didn't think I got my money's worth. So he simply wrote back and said to me, you better come and change it. So I went on to the council, the college, <laughs> And then somebody said, well, you ought to be vice president. So I applied and became vice president. But then I, for the first time ever, put myself up for a major role. I'd always waited for people to ask me, which is a bit silly. So I put myself up for a president and got elected. Yeah, well, I remember that. And, you know, it was very impressive. But you've also had a pretty big leadership role in um, university as well. At Newnham, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I was head of house at Newnham for seven years at a female college at Cambridge and loved that. I mean, it it uh, it's so different. I'd not been to either Oxford or Cambridge, so this was an opportunity to sample it in a, in a different way. But I did a lot in the university, became a pro vice chancellor, I think enabled my college to grow to grow practically with infrastructure, but also to attract uh, more and more women. We, we started off with not many women applying for a place, and we ended up with almost five women to every place we offered. And again, I just loved having young people around me and, and seeing, enabling young people to develop. So that was, that was good. So I suppose, you know, you've got this... Uh track record of actually being able to do two things. One is uh, orchestrate a load of old white men in the Royal College of Physicians and, and other young people in college. And so how did, how did it come that you ended up taking up the baton of uh, policy? How did, how did that come about? 
Well, it started, you know, in 2015, because I had been from 2006 to 2012, which was when I went to Cambridge, the first national director for health and work. Yes, right. But they kept me on as an advisor. And then in 2015, the Cameron government asked me to do um, a review on those people who were in the benefit system who were addicted either to drugs or alcohol, and they threw in obesity. They saw these conditions as self-inflicted. And their question to me was really, how do you get such people able to be in the workplace, in the labour market? And was it the fact that they weren't in treatment that meant they couldn't be in the labour market? And I mean, one of the questions to me was, could you reduce the benefits if they wouldn't go into treatment, which was a rather difficult uh, question. But it was doing that, David, that really got me interested in drug dependency, because what I did think, and of course, I was very naive and I didn't know very much at all, was that we just didn't. We didn't treat drug dependent people like normal human beings mm. and that we stigmatized them and we made it even more difficult for them to progress. And it seemed to me a lot of them were stuck somewhere in the system, quite a lot of them on methadone, but not in a recovery program and not with the potential for decent or any sort of housing and nobody ever discussing with them what would they do if they could get back towards the world of work or even to volunteering? And I just simply didn't think it ought to be like that. And the one major contribution out of that review, I think, that kept my interest, so it kept me talking to government, was that the DWP funded to the tune of nine million the individual placement support trial that has been a three-year trial done by Public Health England in, in, I think it's seven, it might be eight sites around the UK in which individual placement support methodology and case workers were put into treatment centres to try and see whether you could enable people to get towards the world of work and the results have been good. So I kept very close to that trial and I used to go and visit the, the treatment centres. So you'd actually worked both for the Blair Brown government and the Cameron government, so, which you know, in some ways had quite different philosophies around, around health and, and particularly addiction. And I mean, one of the arguments was that there was quite a lot of investment under Blair Brown in terms of, in terms of treatment and then, and then Cameron kind of took that away. But were they sympathetic to your arguments that actually was the wrong The earlier report I did, the first report on working for a healthier tomorrow, got a very sympathetic response. Second one on sickness absence. The one on on drugs, of course, I didn't deliver Mr Cameron what he wanted, which was for me to say it was perfectly okay to dot people's benefits if, uh, if you wouldn't go into treatment. It was a misunderstanding of really what addiction is you could i mean the idea you could force anybody successfully into treatment you would know better than i that that is an impossible thing to do but i do think from that report there came one or two gems of things like the ips trial which because it took so long to do was ready for when i did this review (laughs) 
you know, and the government has funded it going forward now so that every area of the country will have money to put the IPS methodology into treatment centres if it's thought desirable. And over time, I mean, when, when do you think we will have a, a clear view as to whether that's, a, that's something that should be made universal then? I'm hoping they're going to publish their results. They've got, I mean, it was a three and a half year study started in 2017. So I'm hoping that, you know, the results should come out from DWP quite soon. But they look, as much as I've seen them, they look pretty promising. So you think there will be um, political support for this because it's not only humane, but also um, makes economic sense as well then? Well, I mean, in the response to my review, the government has set aside money for DWP to do this. So there is money in the settlement to do that. So, you know, it wasn't a review that was easy to do, but it did get me interested in in addiction. And, and I couldn't understand why we didn't treat it as a chronic condition, because I was a chronic, I mean, I my medicine was chronic disease. I couldn't understand why we didn't see it as something that had remissions and relapses and that getting people signed off on treatment seemed to be a tick box where I consider it, you should never discharge someone like that. You would keep them on the books. You, you keep a bad rheumatoid on the books. You may not see them very often. So for me, it was unsolved business, but I never knew. I thought I would have contributed if we got the IPS trial off the ground. It worked well. We could get sufficient numbers in and government would see it as a positive thing. I never knew really that anything else would come out of that, but I suppose it did keep me in contact with government in those areas. Hello, Drug Science Podcast listeners. I wanted to quickly tell you about an event we're hosting on the 9th and 10th of April, 2022. And this is the second Drug Science Student Psychedelic Conference. The last one was an enormous success, not least because, of course, it's the most inexpensive psychedelic conference in the world, with tickets as low as £5 for a two-day online conference. And during the conference, we're going to cover a whole range of different topics, music, philosophy, relationships, and much more. And you can find the tickets in the show notes for this episode and on the Drug Science website. And I look forward to meeting you all again at the conference. And now, back to the show. Yeah, and you became, I guess, you know, a trusted expert, a trusted sounding board, someone you know, who could give them advice, that, which was measured and, and thought through. And, and so you had your last report then. So how did that come about? So then it was December... Um must have been 2018. It was just before Christmas when they asked me whether I'd consider it. And then it was Sajid Javid who commissioned part one in 2019. That finished just before the pandemic, February 2020. And then, of course, Matt Hancock commissioned part two. I did think as I did part one, They'll never give me part two because I'm going to find, I'm only going to find misery. I mean, in part one. I mean, it was, if you think about it, laying bare a pretty awful situation and you couldn't really run away from it. it and you will know better than I because you lived those years in, uh, in much more involved than I was that it seemed to me that when the NTA came in and there was more money with the Blair government, you did see a reduction in deaths and, and crime. 
and more people in treatment. But then it seemed to me you got austerity for the next 10 years. And it's almost like a truncated experiment because it seems to me that you were never able to go on and really do proper recovery and trauma-involved care and mental health and housing and jobs. I feel I finished the job that was sort of on the books many years ago. I mean, if there's any good things, I don't think it is good in that sense, in a real sense, but if anything came out of the Cameron years, it was showing that if you, changing the policy dramatically as they did, moving addiction out of health into social care, actually basically didn't do very well by people who are taking drugs. And it certainly seemed to be a major factor in the increased death rates, didn't it? Well, I mean, I think it was a perfect storm, wasn't it? There was more drugs coming in. Because there was a lot of them, they seemed to be available in a purer form. They weren't sort of cutting so much. And then you had all this austerity and all the protective factors were taken away. And, I mean, that was just sheer disaster. And there was austerity in so many places. And, of course, the local authorities probably found addiction the easiest thing to cut. I don't think there's any doubt about that. That's right, yeah. Because, you know, if you were the head of a council and you had children's services, you had old people's services, and you had addiction, you're not going to cut children and old people. It doesn't win you votes to do that. So it was and is, of course, still a pretty awful condition we find ourselves in, I think. And although part two, which where the recommendations are, has fortunately brought forth money and resources, I don't believe that money alone changes this. No, well, let's come on to that in a minute, but I'm, I'm interested in, so you, you know, you have been there and you've seen the, you know, the rolling out the treatment agency and, and, and deaths flattened out and then switching over and deaths rising. And, you know, we've talked about some of the politics behind that, but do you think the medical profession hasn't been forceful enough in trying to argue its case? Do you think we've let down our, our patients in that regard? Well, what I couldn't understand, David, as I particularly did part two, when I got, you know, more aware of the depth of the misery, was why had there been no push to the Department of Health or even to the Prime Minister or to government in general to say, stop? I mean, this is now at an awful stage because surely those who specialised in addiction could see it. Now, maybe they tried and it didn't work. But if you if you say cardiology or take one of the big surgical specialties, they would be banging on the door of the Secretary of State. But of course, there are no patient groups, are there? No, that is absolutely. I mean, the professionals weren't, weren't banging on doors, say the doctors, the, the psychologists, I don't know, the social workers. And neither was there any group of patients. No. Nor was there something like the British Society of Cardiology. You, you, you know, there were no many. And I don't know whether people just thought it was easier to just push it under the carpet. It's not so many people will. I just do not understand my professional colleagues. I can tell you, had they treated scleroderma like that, I would have been on their doorstep every minute of the day. Yes, I mean, I think there are maybe a couple of aspects. I mean, you obviously know 
real doctors as opposed to psychiatrists who I work with. And I still feel a bit that the rest of medicine has a, a slightly prejudicial view of addiction. There is still the sense it, well, it's partly your fault because you, you took the drug. And I say, well, hang on a sec, you know, how, do you drink alcohol? Well, of course I drink alcohol. Well, yeah, but do you, know, do you actually, do you actually, are you chosen not to be, you know, is it really that you, you chosen not to be an addict? Is it, you know, how can you, we know that there are genetic factors and we know social factors predisposing to addiction are, are, are extraordinarily powerful. So why wouldn't you see it as, a, as an illness? Like, well, the clearest one would be obesity. You know, do, we don't punish people for being obese. We try to help them. But, you know, there's a sort of overlap with, you know, excessive consumption of drugs. And yet um, we we somehow, I don't know, I think the medic- medicine's never really... No, no, they've never medicine, seen it as part of medicine. But I also wonder, did all psychiatrists see addiction as an important part of medicine? It's a great question. In fact, the truth is, of course, they didn't. And then one of the saddest things being a, because I'm a kind of general, I'm a general psychiatrist, I'm a psychiatrist, so I see people with addiction, but I also see people people with depression. I'm not kind of, I'm sort of everything, but nothing. And so, and so I see it, you know, and I would see, you'd see addiction psychiatrists saying, well, I can't treat this person because they're depressed. And you'd see depression psychiatrists saying, I can't treat this person because they're, addicted and they'd often be bouncing the patient between the two and often in a way of partly I think to avoid work and but also partly because they just didn't feel competent to deal with the other the problems that they weren't experts in but to my mind that's the buck yeah but couldn't we change that couldn't we going forward make a, a general psychiatrist comfortable with some aspects of addiction and vice versa totally I mean I I mean, psychiatry, I, my view is that, you know, you should be able, possibly with the exception of, of, of children, you know, you should be able to deal with most common psychiatric problems. And it's common, depression's common, anxiety's common. And the skill sets, the principles of, of empathy and behavioral change, I mean, they're exactly the same. It's, it's something I would really dearly like to do to either encourage psychiatrists to have the skills to do both or at least have shared teams so that, so that, you know, you would talk with each other. You don't, patients don't fall between the gaps because that is the most demoralizing thing of all to, to actually be seeking help and find that no one's prepared to give it. And, you know, we don't have dual diagnoses and say, if I was a woman with breast cancer and rheumatoid, you don't tell me to get my rheumatoid under control and maybe a year later you'll deal with my breast cancer because somehow you know that's very, very bad medicine and you could be actually causing my premature death. But we do exactly that to a, a drug-dependent person. It is interesting, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's, and it's even worse because we know that the overlap is, is at least two-thirds of people with a drug problem have also got other mental health problems. That's what it's, so it's, it's not that this is a rare thing. This is, this is the norm is comorbidity and we ought to be embracing because from my perspective there's two two opportunities to do use or to to do something beneficial so yes i think you know dividing and subspecialization can be perverse in that sense and i sort of hope part two may have made that point very clearly and you know let's hope there is better working together well already i mean one of the saddest things was to see how the the cameron years really destroyed addiction psychiatry in the sense that a lot of large numbers of my colleagues who were, were made redundant, they went into the private sector because uh, the costings were all driven locally by, um, by bids, often by um, charities that were 
largely serviced by ex-addicts who, you know, are very useful helpers, but don't necessarily have the full, obviously don't have the full skill set that a doctor has. And so saving money became the kind of watchword and we lost these these experts. And then we discovered it was actually, that was really problematic because there was no one to train <laughs> the staff that were there and also to train the next generation. And we actually found it particularly in terms of research. I mean, when I went to Imperial in 2008, you know, one of the reasons I went was, it, you know, my trust, Northwest London, you know, was the largest provider of addiction services in probably in Britain, certainly in North in London, you know, and we could do lots of research. And five years later, you know, no one's interested in research because that isn't part addiction is not, not an illness. So why would you research it? Well, I, th- I hope I hope at least research is going to get a, a rather better deal going forward. Well, yeah, absolutely. You've pointed that out. And also, you know, actually already you see that the college and, and you know, funders are, are talking much more honestly in, about the need to have some trained people in it, whether they're dual trained or whether they're specialists, doesn't matter. But there's no question expertise is really useful when you're dealing with complicated things like, like medicine. So overall, were you, you generally pleased with how it all panned out in the end? I mean, it was an extraordinary amount of work you had to put in. Yes, I am. I'm very, I'm pleased, if you like, with what we produced. I'm even more pleased the Treasury decided it was worthy of some resources. It was about, I think, about 70% of what I asked for. Uh, You know, if if you map it over the three years. I think the biggest sort of challenge now, David, is can we make it work? You know, have has the decline been such that we're at such a low ebb that even though we've got three years of money, is that long enough to convince the government that we can bring about change and that we can uh, make the figures much better and we can take people on a proper road of recovery? It requires so many things to be done to get there. Yeah, but, you know, you've got to start. the. No, no. So, I mean, and I try and keep feet to the fire without any... Well, are you able to do that, by the way? What? Yeah, they've given me a contract. Oh, you still have some authority in this. Oh, that's good. They've made me an, an independent advisor to them. So, of course, they will. governments will do what governments will do. But I think there is enough energy and enthusiasm among the stakeholders, whether it be the providers, whether that be private or, or public providers, I think with the professionals that are left, to really, I believe we could make it happen, but I think it's going to be hard work and it's going to take a great deal of determination. But I do think it's possible. Well, we know that you've got that, both the capacity for hard work and determination. And if, if drug science can help you in any way, obviously, we you know, we'd be delighted to put our shoulders to the wheel as well. And uh, I think the fact that it's something's happened at all is really very exciting because, you know, there was a, there's been eight, nine years of pessimism. And I think, you know, great that you've convinced people that there is a value in what we're doing. And I'm not surprised it's Department of Work and Pensions, actually. I I did some work with them many years ago on the burden of depression, which is, of course, vast and not just a burden, but a loss. You know, opportunity costs of depression when people aren't in the workplace is vast. And the same is true of addiction. So, so they're actually, in some ways, they're the most pragmatic and the least moralistic of the departments I've had the pleasure of working with. So I don't know if you agree. <laughs> no, I would agree. And I, I also hope that the government will support some proper research now. I mean, and make it 
possible that there are resources, financial resources to do research because I think we suffer greatly from the fact that we don't have an institute or a place, even if it's virtual. I mean, I don't physically mean a physical place, but where we, we have a presence of of addiction research. And, and I would say both at the very sharp end of, if, if you like, the hard scientific end, but also recovery and, and psychological treatment. And that once you've got a better evidence base, you want that to be able to then influence future policy. And I think, you know, that would really give me the great, great pleasure if we can start to see a move towards a decent research base to this and people wanting to do research in addiction. It's extraordinarily rewarding. I mean, I've been working researching addiction for 30 years and a, there's a lot to learn, but also the models that we have, you know, preclinical models work quite well. So it actually, it is, it is one of the, in a sense, simpler or, or at least uh, more translatable fields of, uh, of science and medicine. So yeah, absolutely, completely agree with you. And, and the investment, you know, is almost certainly going to repay itself many times over. And we should be doing it. So I think, you know, I think, again, there are people both in the Department of Health and in the Home Office, and indeed, I think in number 10, who have got that message now pretty clearly. Well, good luck. Take over. I, I hope they're going to nominate you as the first, uh, first director of the National Institute. <laughs> I just want people to get on and do the work now. I, you know, the people who know about these things. David, I don't have an expertise in addiction. I think I have an ability to step back and look at a problem and honestly try and find the evidence and I don't favour any side. I'm not. I think that's if I bring anything to this party, it's those sort of skills. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the great thing. You bring, you bring a sort of dispassionate, disinterested wisdom, which definitely helps. And that, you know, to be fair, just to go back to why, you know, that things may not have in the past have been as good as they could be in addiction. There are factions. You know, you've got the faction between the absolutist, never abstention is the only way. And the pragmatists like me say, well, OK, but maybe for some people, a bit of harm reduction would work. And, you know, it's we can be our own worst enemies sometimes when we. Uh, but I think even they have come together somewhat as I've done the work. And I think what I tried to say to everybody, I'm interested in the journey. And in a good journey, you would get to the point of, of not needing or, or not taking any drugs. But you may get three quarters of the way along the journey, like my patients with rheumatoid arthritis. But they live really fulfilled, happy lives. And so that's why it's important to think of it as a condition, a, a chronic health condition. Absolutely. If you've done, if that's all you did to get the Department of Health to accept that, then that is a wonderful thing. But you've actually done a lot more than that. And I just hope you can carry on. I mean, you clearly... <laughs> You've got a lot of expertise, a lot of resilience and a lot of uh, insight. So thank you for what you've done for the, the discipline. And please carry on as long as you can. <laughs> I've got good bounce back ability or whatever that would be. I, I, I always think tomorrow will be a better day. Well, I'm very similar to you. Yeah, I'm a perennial optimist too. And uh, yeah, let's hope we're both right. Yeah, let's, let's hope so. Thank you anyway. <laughs> Carol, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. And all I can say is keep up the good work. And I am an honorary psychiatrist because I do have an honorary fellowship of the college. So I've given something back, perhaps. <laughs>
Well, you've given a lot back in this report, I can tell you. You've resurrected us. So thanks again. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.